hey, this is Richie coming at you from the School of Marketing HQ. Before you dive into the show, I just want to tell you about a brand new short 12-week program we've launched called the Giants Marketing Masterclass. The program gives you access to insights and expert comments from over 25 CEOs and CMOs from major companies like Unilever, L'Oreal, M&S, Pret, and WPP, just to name a few. We focus on six key areas of marketing, customer, brand, commercial, creative, channel, and data and analytics. So if you were looking to upskill yourself or your team for just two and a half hours each week and get access to a network with our industry's giants through our live sessions, do check out the School of Marketing website for more deets. Alrighty, for now, enjoy the show. Hello to all you wonderful people out there and welcome to another episode of the Places Will Go show with your hosts, Mark and myself, Richie. Now today we have another fab guest on the show, none other than Sophia Angelus, the SVP and Global Managing Director of Jack Daniels. Welcome, Sophia. Really great to be here, Richie. Thank you for having me. Oh, look, absolute pleasure. Um, look, now, before we dive into the show, let me give you a little insight into Sophia's career, which honestly has been absolutely stellar. Now, before her current role, um, she's had a string of uh, marketing director roles within Brown Foreman, um, and she's also she's been there for around 20 years. Um, and for, for all of those who may not have come across Brown Foreman, they're a massive alcohol and beverage company with some amazing brands like Jack Daniels, um, Finlandia, uh, Ford's um, Gin, and um, Hira Dura Tequila. Um, she has worked for a range of territories in Europe, um, Africa, Middle East, and India. So she really does know a thing or two about international marketing. Now, um, before this, she was actually in the luxury products division at L'Oreal. So I think that's probably where she's learned her craft of marketing, but we'll dig, we'll dig into that a little bit more in a bit. So I'm look, just super excited to welcome Sophia onto the show to find out more about her careers, some of the highs, and I'm sure some of the lows as well, and what advice she may have for us um, in order to achieve some of the things that she's done. So welcome, Sophia. Let's kick off. Well, fabulous to have you on, Sophia. Um, just before we get started, we were just talking in the virtual green room about um, our, our slight connection in terms of you grew up in Greece and I worked in Greece for a while uh, and um, actually I didn't tell you this but the only Greek I learned was tohito ehi the food has arrived because that was all that mattered because <laughs> everything else was lost on me um, but um, let's, so let's start there growing up in in Greece we've never had anybody on before I think that's um, that's come from Greece so tell us a little bit about growing up in Greece. Well, it was wonderful. Uh, and, and I was actually born, my parents, my mum was Swedish and my dad was Greek. And so I was born in Sweden, but grew up most of my life uh, in Greece. And uh, look, Greece is an amazing country uh, full of people who are entrepreneurial, creative, uh, go-getters. And, uh, and they are people who are used to a pretty tough life, actually, and uh, are used to overcoming obstacles uh, and surviving and thriving in the face of adversity. And so alongside what you know, uh, as you know, coming from outside, you know, the beautiful islands, the weather, the beaches, uh, the culture, the history, the food, uh, importantly, there's also just a, a phenomenal, um, it, it's a phenomenal place to grow up. It was safe, it was fun. Um, uh, and certainly in my early 20s and uh, when you're as a young adult, it's a, it's a great place to be. 
Um, so uh, it was sort of formative in uh, as I started, you know, my career and uh, went to uni. And then my first couple of jobs were uh, effectively in Athens. Well, I'll tell you, Sophia, you're really selling this to me. Um, <laughs> it, it feels like if, if nothing else, I need to go visit for a holiday very soon. But um, so, Sophia, over the past couple of weeks, I've been emailing you back and forth a wee bit. And it seems like you've got a very hectic tra- um, travel schedule clearly running running a a global brand, um, predominantly a US-based brand from the UK, perhaps has its challenges and, and the like. So tell us a little bit about that. What's your, your daily or weekly or monthly routine look like? Um, so I, I am uh, deeply honored, actually, to be leading uh, Jack Daniels. And it, it's it, even though the US, as you say, Richie, is really important, it's our biggest market, uh, which comprises, I think, half of our business. Uh, Jack Daniels is is ultimately a global brand. We uh, sell Jack Daniels, we're present in 170 countries and our uh, consumer is, uh, our consumer base is broad and diverse. And uh, look, this is one of the reasons I got into marketing to to answer your question. It's because it's a very rich variety of topics that you deal with from strategy to uh, leading people to um, doing forecasts for production and laying down the whiskey to um, creative development. And and so those are, that's just a um, a snapshot of some of the things I, I, I do and my team does. And, and actually, uh, last week, we were all together, uh, 60 of us, 60 Jack Daniels leaders came together at what we call our home place in Lynchburg, Tennessee. And our home place is where we make our whiskey. And all of Jack Daniels comes from one single place, uh, which is unbelievable, almost. Uh, and it was important to get people together Um because after COVID, uh, of course, the connections had been a little bit lost. We keep operating in a hybrid environment, uh, which is it's an interesting challenge, I think, for leaders today. And uh, we got together for a few reasons. First of all, to connect and reconnect with one another um, and then to share our long term strategy and to uh, really help uh, shape it and embed it with uh, leaders from around the world. So I've literally just come back and still a little bit jet lagged. Well, we'll we'll scoop you up out of that. I, I have to say that on the the underground advertising, which is pretty much probably what I most experience, I always think hats off uh, because obviously the heritage and the story is an amazing one. And, you know, almost unbelievable as you say. But um, yeah, I mean, simply for both the, the both is a differentiated and distinctive consistency, distinctive brand assets. So um, so yeah. There you go. Thought I'd say that. Thank you. So, so, so whiskey. I mean, you. We had Becky Brock on, and I think she talked most passionately about her time working in the whiskey industry. It seems to have kind of this cult thing. What, what's, what's, what is it with whiskey? Well, I think whiskey has a certain magic to it that comes from the fact that it's crafted and it's crafted over time and it requires patience and it and it has through because of that time it generally has stories and stories of its founder and stories around the process and stories around place where where 
it's produced. And, and actually, from a marketing perspective, if you like, having those brand stories, rich brand stories, roots, roots us in authenticity, roots us in uh, sort of genuine stories that, you know, will engage with uh, consumers, but also just really um, uh, reinforce craft credentials. So there's something when you work for uh, whiskey, I think that you it generates uh, a, a certain amount of pride uh, that I think is um, because of that nature of the craftsmanship just generates more pride, I think, than perhaps many other products. Um, and, and I think generally um, I've also come across people who work on whiskey are very passionate about what they do and uh, and the brand that they represent. So it, it is a cult, just coming, Richie, it is a cult. Um, I've got the hairs on the back of my neck standing up when you talk about that, because it's, you know, we all talk about storytelling. You know, what if the category you're working in is so well oriented towards storytelling? But, but back, back to you, Richie. No, look, it's, it's a wonderful point. And I just want to perhaps just dig into this for, for, for you know, one layer, one layer more. And, and particularly joining the dots, Mark, what you were talking about um, in the context of the underground advertising. And then, of course, Sophia, where you were last week in Tennessee. Um, I just I get this great sense that Jack Daniels and, and the way that you position the homeland um, is quite remarkable. And I wonder if if that's all part of it. And, and maybe what does what does the 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 you know, the the, um, the place or the geography in, in which it's created and 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 and, and manufactured play in, in the overarching sort of specialness or magic of the whole thing? I think it plays a really important role. Now, whether um, it, it, and I think the role is whether it's kind of the the reasons to believe, if you like, that that we say uh, the. Uh, the nature of the process, the place, the founder, et cetera, uh, and whether you overtly communicate that or not, um, the home place or where the brand comes from, particularly in whiskey, I think permeates values, permeates uh, some of those brand stories. Now, on Jack Daniels, we used to be very much uh, Lynchburg forward, if you like. And, and so we used to explicitly explicitly talk about the people that work there, uh, our, our distillery, our tour guides, uh, our distillery workers. Um, we used to talk about Lynchburg that has only one stoplight. We used to talk about our, our process, our unique process. And, uh, and, what we've done is as we've evolved and as the brand has evolved, what we've realized is that some of those stories will exist throughout uh, the brand's life. Now, will they be front facing or consumer facing? Not all the time, but they'll live in this sort of universe of messaging and stories that, that we tell. If you think about the Scotch industry, Scotch industry has done such a wonderful job of building where uh, scotch comes from right the distilleries and uh, how that affects the the nature of the whiskey and the taste and the flavor and the the you know the personality even of the whiskey and so home place is really important and and plays a key role so if you're just going to say and i don't know to what extent you use system one and and the the work that orlando wood does um, you probably do. It's probably all throughout, um, you know, um, scattered in, in all your thinking. Um, but but the role of place, and in fact, a recognizable place, 
um, is one of the most um, important components when when building out brand distinctive assets. So it just it seems fascinating front and center, and perhaps it's, for me one of the best examples I've come across of using that recognizable place as a way to then you know to get resonance within your audiences. So it's a, it's a wonderful example. Yeah, okay, so um, Richie's obviously half Scottish. So I'm going to stop the whiskey love in for a second, and uh, um, and and you, you said about you started your your career in Greece, and um, so fascinated to know how it all, how it all began. Was marketing a very deliberate intent, a happy accident, or or something else? Even, <laughs> even though um, I'll preface it by saying it was a happy accident, even though. I studied marketing and organizational behavior uh, at, at university, and um, but I hadn't quite decided what I was going to do. And my father was in the tourism business. And so for a while, I sort of dabbled in tourism and I worked. He had a small tourist uh, the tourism agency. I mean, we don't have that anymore or hardly. Um, and my first job was actually in hospitality, in, in the hotel business, uh, in sales. And it was really by chance that I met um, through one of our events, a, uh, a wonderful um, woman who worked for L'Oreal and we got talking and, uh, and she offered to uh, a connection to L'Oreal. There was a job opening. She asked, what, why don't you interview? And the rest is history. That was sort of my, my way in. So it was very, um, it, it was sort of random. Well, random in the sense that that connection was uh, coincidental, but it was what I had studied, and I think studied, and deep down, I think it was uh, what my uh, ultimately what my calling, if you like, uh, was, without really knowing it at the time. So th the industry sucked you in. It it, it certainly did. It certainly did, and. I mean, L'Oreal was a fantastic marketing school. Um, and coming into lifestyle products and luxury lifestyle products, you know, such as cosmetics, perfumes, you know, all of the re really where you, uh, from a marketing perspective, again, you build brands based on beautiful stories and very much based on system one kind of immediate emotional engagement was um, just very, just very uh, fascinating. Uh, and those brands as well, each one of those brands, because it ranged from skincare to perfumes to uh, makeup, had stories of their own, whether we were talking about Helena Rubinstein, whether we were talking about uh, Lancôme or Biofirm. And, and so that was really the beginning of uh, starting to understand how uh, marketing worked in practice and really with these absolutely amazing brands that had, again, a very rich territories that you could uh, dig into. And of course, Greece was a, a fascinating market to start in because at the time it was um, a pretty undeveloped market with a very a, a high potential. So we delivered double digit growth every year and our marketing team of three did everything from the media buying, everything, literally the media buying negotiation uh, to our PR events, to setting up um, the um, the department stores for promotions. Uh, 
And so for a young uh, person to come in at the beginning of their career and, and have the whole gamut uh, of, of marketing from, and very much practical application was, was a gift. So many learnings in there, not least if you start small early in your career, you can take more risks, get more rich learning, et cetera. Um, just on L'Oreal, we had Lex Bradshaw Zanger on, great guy, actually really great guy. He's doing this, uh, being involved in it, he's doing a leadership program for his lead team, um, six sort of uh, modules, future of learning, future of data, future of technology. So he's really investing in these people, impressive organization. And as you say, that was your school. But what was super interesting was you said it was sort of random, but actually, basically, it was networking that you got you that job because you, you'd had a connection and then that led to something and the dot, dot, dot. So I want to talk a bit about networking because it's so important in these days in terms of career building. So what, what's your sort of philosophy or practice of networking? Yes, and, and networking sometimes can be a dirty word, right? Uh, and I just want to dispel that myth uh, because it's about making connections and building relationships. Uh, networking, I think the word sometimes implies or is perceived as very transactional and a one-way uh, benefit. And I think throughout my career, I've benefited from building connections and building relationships uh, whether they're internal, uh, just as important to build those internal connections and relationships, just as much as uh, the, the external uh, the external ones, and, um, and and let me talk a little bit about those internal ones. I think if there's one thing I would say to anyone starting uh, in marketing or starting in a company in any position, I think marketing in particular because it's such a sort of hub and spoke, it is really at the center of working cross-functionally with pretty much any fun every function in, the, in uh, an organization. I would say starting to build those connections, that network of individuals is really important because you build trust, uh, you make uh, your job easier, um, and ultimately when the time is right and opportunities come up, you're top of mind. Uh, and uh, and so uh, not to mention, of course, the support that you get, uh, whether it's through sponsorship or mentorship. Um, and so those, building those connections are ultimately really important. These are people who, when you're not in the room, will talk on your behalf, speak on your behalf uh, and champion you. Sophia, it's such it's it's such rich insight there, and and I couldn't agree more around that. Certainly, in the internal piece to forge those those networks, um, and look, you know, within the context of your organization, there'll be there'll be many people who are are looking to forge a successful career, and I just wondered, you know, is there any advice that you typically give them beyond, of course, you know, fostering great great alliances and networks? Is there any sort of tech, maybe skills or or advice or guidance or things that you think they should do to help? to help um, elevate themselves and maybe get a bit more front of mind? And Richie, I'm reminded of a conversation that you and I had over a uh, breakfast coffee around the what and the how. And, and so, of course, as you start your marketing career, what's really important is to demonstrate the, the technical marketing skills, you know, around understanding uh, brand positioning, the uh, mining of insights, 
the um, driving business results and understanding sort of the, the financials, right? The PNL was driving the business and what's important from a uh, value uh, growth uh, perspective. So all of those sort of technical marketing skills, particularly at the beginning of one's career, are essential. Why? Because you're literally on the job. You're uh, you're assigned mainly implementation executional tasks as you progress through your career. I mean, obviously, strategy becomes uh, more and more important, but equally, it's then the how. So it's not just what you do, but it's what we in Brown Foreman call the how are your your uh, sort of leadership abilities. Um, sometimes I think mistakenly called soft skills because they're actually very hard. These are the skills you learn and you have to hone and you have to practice and they have to do with being an excellent communicator, building relationships, being collaborative, um, being a great leader uh, and learning to lead and not manage. And, and so I think those skills come in uh, and, and become even more important as you sort of uh, progress. But I think those are skills that are important from the beginning because they they require us to be uh, have a good dose of self-awareness uh, because in order to be a good communicator, you have to be a really good listener. Uh, in order to be a good listener, you have to have a, a degree of humility and uh, but also self-confidence, right? That you don't need to demonstrate uh, that you are the knower in the in the room. And, and so I think even at the beginning, sort of being able to listen to understand uh, what motivates others and how you can position yourself to help others, I think will go a long way in building those relationships, building the network and positioning yourself uh, in a way that's going to be uh, beneficial. It's, uh, it's I'm joining a dot back to the the Greece thing again, which is I always remember when people would say, you know, we're very fortunate because there'll always be food on the table. So there's a very humble undertone. I have to say, in contrast to waking up to the news this morning around Twitter, where Elon Musk is clearly the big I am, but seems to be blowing the company up. But anyway, on leadership, it's a slightly quirky question, but what, why would you want to work for you? I would want to work for me. Wow, that is a quirky question. Uh, and if my team were listening now, I don't know what they would. <laughs> I don't know what they would tell me. <laughs> oh, Marky puts well, a few on the spot there. If if you were, there's a chance for you to talk freely about your, you know, your brilliant assets. Well, if you were there with me last week, they might have said, "Well, she's a pretty enthusiastic karaoke singer." <laughs> Always helps. Always helps. Um, I think what I have learned throughout my career is to be able to uh, step back and listen. Uh, and, and I've been able to bring people together and do that under circumstances that are, uh, that would typically be seen as uh, challenging. Uh, the role that I have now, uh, I stepped into on January the 1st, 2020. And it was the first time that uh, a woman led Jack Daniels globally. And it was the first time that a global Jack Daniels or head of Jack Daniels was based outside of the US. Now, 
stepped in January the 1st, 2020, we all know what happened mid-March of 2020. Uh, and so um, the ability to kind of pull people together, set a vision, and bring everyone along on the journey, I think is something that uh, people would want to to uh, would would see in me. And this is, thankfully, it's not something that I make up. Uh, to, to answer your question, is something that I've been told. Yeah. Um, and um, so that's kind of one thing. I think the the other piece of it, and we were actually discussing uh, this wonderful book called the uh, the Culture Map. Uh, which talks about leadership and communication across uh, and, and how different cultures, because of how they're uh, educated and their philosophers, how they receive information and how leadership sort of happens. Um, my The Swedish side of me has a very egalitarian style of leadership. And I think people appreciate that too, because uh, ultimately I'm a, uh, I'm pretty collaborative and open, if you like, and not very hierarchical. Now, that wouldn't necessarily work everywhere, but in the setting, in Brown Foreman, for this team and with these exceptional individuals that I'm very fortunate to work with, it seems to work because I get the best out of them. I, I don't have to micromanage anybody. I would hate to do that anyway. I wouldn't know where to start. Um, and my job is to remove obstacles uh, and, and enable them and inspire them. And I seem to be doing that. Hey, wonderful. And an absolute kudos to you. I mean, you know, you talked about it. You talked about those those two trailblazing efforts, whether it be, you know, first woman in the role um, and, and certainly outside of the US. I mean, it, it, it certainly takes, uh, I'm sure it takes a lot, but I like the way that you framed it in the context of Brown Foreman. And you've obviously been there a very long time now. So there obviously is something special about the organization. And, and it was interesting. So I, in our conversations, um, you used a wonderful phrase, which was being culturally additive, as opposed to try and get cultural fit. And perhaps you could elaborate on that a little bit. And I wonder what role does that play in, in Brown Foreman creating a happy home for people when they're there? It's a it's such a good question, Richie, and it's one I I keep thinking about, and and it's a big discussion in the company at the moment. And of course, you know, you join an organization that has um, a set of values, and I think Brown Foreman, because it's uh, family owned, uh, publicly traded, but the family side of it uh, means that we live our values uh, and, and they come across and, and they sort of transpire throughout the business uh, quite strongly. And these are, you know, values around trust, excellence, teamwork, respect. Of course, the, the more individuals uh, aspire or, or live those values, the, the more they'll thrive in the business. Now, how do you also then bring diversity, right? So that you have diversity of thinking, not just represent, but well, you have diversity of representation of gender, ethnicity, race, sexual orientation, but also diversity of thinking so that it's not 
kind of one way of, of, of thinking. And, and that's always, I think that's always a little bit of a challenge. I think it comes back down to if the values are the same at the heart of it, then it allows for more flexibility around this. You can you can sort of stretch people's comfort zones around the, the culture fit. You don't have to fit into a specific box or mold you can then add to it and it sort of adds increments. And if I think of how we've, how we have uh, expanded uh, globally, I mean, again, last week was a great example of our uh, brilliant uh, team members from uh, Singapore, Japan, South Korea, and China. And I mean, you know, they never worked in the U.S. or in our, at our headquarters. They'd never been to Lynchburg. And yet each one of these individuals lives the same values. Do they also add their own spin and their own um, uh, wonderful sort of uh, layer onto those? Of course they do. And that's what makes the company so rich. Um, Mark Ritson wrote recently about tenure and how that got you to the good stuff um, and you know what, what a great example you are Sophia um, but of course life's never perfect and there's bang-ups along the way um, and in most cases people are successful because of things aren't always perfect so what, what are some of the stuff that's come along where you've hit a bump in the road and you, what you've learned from it? I remember one uh, case where um, I was heading up well I was not heading up I was heading up myself because there was nobody else in the role uh, I had a uh, marketing excellence role, which was uh, focused on driving all of the uh, kind of educational frameworks and uh, bringing sort of best industry thinking into the company. And I was called in uh, by the then uh, Jack Daniels president, uh, as he was, and <laughs> And basically, he closed the door and said, well, Sophia, your uh, role is has been just been made redundant. Now, <laughs> and for a few seconds there, like, oh, crap. <laughs> it, what do I do now? And then at the same breath, he said, well, so we have some other considerations for you and sort of then outlined this new role that he proceeded to offer. And it wasn't a role I wanted at all. Um, and I didn't want it because, A, I wasn't prepared for it. So I was angry, really. I was sort of reacting. But also, it wasn't the brand I wanted to work on. And you feel a little bit out of control. And and I was hurt, you know. And, um, uh, <laughs> and so I walked away. And of course, of course, I accepted, right, just to kind of make it very clear that I didn't want to be out of a job and I wasn't going to uh, be on a high horse here. Uh, left, the, left the office um, and it took me a couple of days to sort of sit, reflect and, and reflect on my own um, feelings and emotions, uh, but also think about the role and think about what I was going to do. And I'm not a person that uh, just my, my nature is not to dwell on uh, negative things for a very long time. I'm generally an optimist. And so, look, after a couple of days, it was like, OK, 
enough of the ego now. Let's put the ego aside. Ego's been, the pride's been hurt. Enough of that. Uh, how am I going to make the best of this uh, new situation? And so you sort of, I pivoted relatively quickly. Uh, and I think that's the to the benefit of mainly me, but also the company uh, that ultimately after a couple of days, they, again, they got my best self. And ultimately that role was a brilliant role. I learned so much. It gave me new skills. I got to work with new people, new set of people on really fun, strategic, you know, meaty projects and uh, and it was the right thing to um, to not give up and to also sort of come around from a mindset perspective. Was it easy? Absolutely not. <laughs> but is it worth it? Yes. I'd say thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's uh, you know uh, stories of redundancy and, and 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 sort of thinking about things and mindset changing. It was interesting when you talked about it that a lot of the the things you were go- that you were going through were sort of in your mind, and it was actually a few days later where you could come out of yourself and kind of go, actually, no, let's reframe stuff that's going on in my own head to then give it my best. Um, you know, through that process, and I'm sure other processes where you've had difficult times. Um, I'm very, on a side note, very fortunate to say that Sophia is one of our mentors on our on our mentoring program. Um, but what has the role of uh, mentoring, perhaps, or or, or uh, role models, or people that you go to when these times of things occur? What what role do you think it has um, on on being able to bounce back um, when when things get tough? So important. The me- mentor for me, um, I've had a mentor. I've had a couple of mentors actually um, throughout my career. And, and actually my first mentor was also the woman who hired me. Uh, and still to this day, we have, I've been very fortunate to work for her, with her, uh, alongside her on a number of projects, on a number of roles. And she continues to be my, uh, my mentor and, and go to. And so, in situations like the one I've just described is actually a great example because the first person I went to after I left the office, that office where I was made redundant, I went straight to her. And, uh, and of course, she was able to accelerate the process by which I could think through, uh, rationally think through and, and provide, provided a really good perspective uh, and a calm perspective. Um, but it's not just times of crises. I mean, mentors are also, you know, during uh, career forks, you know, what path do you want to take? And they're not there to provide the answer, but what I've invariably found my mentor's perspective on things and and sort of pointed questions have just made my thinking and my decision-making better. Um, and so for me, having a mentor uh, is really important. And I've mentored also lot, lots of people informally in the company. And what what I see the value, I mean, it's a two-way street. I get to see how people are sort of progressing and building their careers. Uh, and what I get to do is, uh, again, ask them some questions that might unlock different thinking 
uh, in a different perspective that they may not have considered before. That that lifelong mentor seems to be ultra important. I don't know if you want to take a moment just to name check because you don't have to, but it feels remiss because clearly, you know, they should get a shout out. Well, she she is one of the uh, smartest uh, people I know. Her name is Maureen Brecker. She's ex-P&G and she based in Louisville. Maureen, if you ever hear this, thank you. Uh, she knows I'm always uh, uh, very much appreciative and uh, and we've become friends through the years, you know, through the 20 plus years of working together and sharing some vulnerable moments uh, and emotional moments. Uh, it, it's, you know, you you become close. And so I'm I'm forever grateful to to have uh, to have had Maureen uh, and to continue to have Maureen by my side. Uh, and what's wonderful is that we're on the same sort of brand leadership team now. And uh, even in those small uh, appreciation moments where you feel sometimes um, as a senior leader, it's sort of quite lonely, uh, right? Because you don't get to uh, necessarily, you don't get the same praise as when you're part of a, a team and you're starting out, or you don't necessarily uh, have the same type of conversations and she's there praising a kind word here a word of appreciation there and that matters uh and and that's reciprocal you know and um so yes it's uh it's a really important relationship lovely and all, all credit to maureen and uh, i love the way that that, that relationship has become one of friendship um now uh, changing subjects quite quite a bit uh, you're as close as it gets to being a global citizen um, and so to put you on the spot, kind of what's the, well, maybe one or two favourite countries that you like to, to work with? Not, not to holiday, but, you know, that I'm, I'm trying to draw out sort of different working styles. Oh, this is like asking what's, what are your favourite children? Yeah. I mean, I have, I've been so fortunate to work with really different cultures. Um, and I'll just pick out a couple because I don't know it's very difficult to choose but I love working with let me pick the Brazil team for example the Latin American culture again what what I what I love about it is the passion the entrepreneurialism the creativity I mean and and the teams are always I mean the passion sort of shines through um and there's a and I think that's probably from from you know my Greek roots, but the, there's a very warm uh, a, approach that that I really uh, appreciate. Then if you go over to uh, Asia, uh, I was in China a few years ago, and with my Chinese colleagues, again, there's just this. I don't know if it's optimism, but the the just the the look to the future and the the world of possibilities and the ambition and particularly among sort of our um young consumers just this energy that uh sometimes you know in uh more developed countries you know you you don't see that level of energy uh as much and so that's what I really appreciate. And then you've, you know, so these are just a couple of examples, but I, I this is 
part of what I love about my job is to work with uh, different teams across different countries on on you know an opportunity or or a challenge. I mean that's the that's the brilliant part of my job. Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head really when you talked about the the brilliant element, and I know I know how uh, both passionate and I know. F- um, privileged you feel for being in that position and it sounds wonderful to be able to work with such great cultures and teams um and my next and you should have almost preempted my next question because i wondered if if you know beyond the brilliance perhaps what would you say is some of the the moments where you kind of um are not all groovy in being in such a, a global um important pivotal role in the organization are there any moments you kind of go oh gosh you know, the 20, the 80, 20 rule must prevail in every role, I guess. I mean, the, the first thing, any, uh, if you're in a local market, so if you're working for the UK or you're working in France or in China, the first thing they will tell you is, oh, my goodness, the global team, they never do what we ask them to do. And they always do these global programs and it's not relevant to my market. So look, the, being in a global role is... The, the challenge is that, first of all, you have a uh, very long-term perspective. And it in a business that it, typically businesses are short-term oriented, right, with very few exceptions, we look at monthly, quarterly, yearly results. What we're talking about is the long-term stewardship of the brand that you you work on over five, 10, 20 years, generations of marketers to build a brand that's consistent and that's going to grow sustainably uh, for generations to come. So so that there's a paradox and and there's a tension there. uh, And and that always comes between kind of the global team and and the regions and the local markets. So the kind of the, the, the timeframe in which we operate and the sense of urgency um, and, and then, of course, when you look at how just how much can you tailor uh, things to local markets? And an example is if I think about our creative development or when we go and produce advertising, we have a process that we call or a model, if you like, that we uh, term uh, globally led, locally infused. And so we have insights we have a creative idea we have a brand positioning that is global in its nature why because we believe that those values those insights and the role of the brand is consistent no matter where you are in the world now how that is expressed in china versus how it's expressed in germany or brazil will be slightly different and so the the challenge with a global uh, brand team and, and what we do is to make the decisions of, okay, when we develop advertising, as an example, because that is a big investment, how much can we cater to the different markets, right? How much can it be tailor-made? And, you know, our, our uh, competitor friends, uh, Johnny Walker, for example, do a a wonderful job of doing that uh, because they've been they've built uh, the brand over time uh, and have been present in many of those uh, different markets 
for a long time. And so, look, that that those are a couple of examples of the the challenges, but uh, they are offset uh, way more by by the benefits uh, and, and the great things that that come with the job. I actually think you've done a great ad for wanting to be in a, a global role. Um, so, Sophia, I mean, it's uh, where's the time gone? Last question, unfortunately, um, for, for this show. Uh, and, and maybe a simple one, or maybe not. We'll see. But, I mean, ultimately, you've achieved so much. You're clearly not done yet. What are your hopes for the future for yourself and your career? Well, it's a great question because, obviously, when you get to the kind of more experienced age, <laughs> uh, you you start to think about okay, well, um, what's next? And I think what's next is you. It's less about the the role, if you like, and you start to really carve out what is it I like doing, and what is it that I, I think I'm good at, and. And what and I know what I enjoy. And what so what I enjoy doing is I enjoy working leading teams. I absolutely love working with people, seeing them, uh, mentoring them, developing people, seeing them uh grow, develop, get promoted. Um, I love working across cultures, I love working on complex strategic uh opportunities. So you know, if that opportunity arises, no matter what it looks like, uh, you know, within the company, uh, that would be amazing uh, to, to be able to do that. At the same time, you know, uh, the conversations I've had with uh, Richie is also, I'd love to give back. And this is why I, uh, I've i started to engage as a mentor. Uh, and we've done with Brown Foreman previously, we've also done uh, sort of workshops with charity organizations around marketing. And so, you know, what are the things that I can do as an individual to, uh, you know, more than promote marketing, how can I do my bit? Uh, you know, having been fortunate and privileged enough to be in this situation, how can I help others uh, and give them, a you know, a leg up? so to speak, to to uh, to either get into an organization or certainly help them navigate some of the uh, the organizational uh, sort of pieces. Sophia, wow, what and then what a what a wonderful way to end the the episode. Um, it's just just for me to say a massive vote of thanks. I mean, it's been brilliantly enriching um, as, as you've talked through so many different things. Um, I want to I just want to start by by reflecting on the thought that when we when we talked about where does the future lie it doesn't actually lie in a specific job title but actually it lies in enjoyment of what you do and doing more to be more fulfilled in what you do and so much of that is your desire and willingness to pay it forward to others which I just think is is wonderful and and beautiful in that sense um but going back to, to some of the things, I mean, you certainly gave us a bit of a masterclass on so many areas, whether that be technical marketing ability to the thought around leadership um, and how you manage your teams, whether they be global versus local, the importance and role of mentoring and what that's done for you, whether, you know, at times you being mentored or, 
are you doing the mentoring? Thank you, Maureen, once again for all that you've done. Um, the way that you bridge culture, um, I think, is also remarkable. And and you know, your um, your intuitiveness, I feel, around um, being able to understand people and get the most out of them, something that I've certainly just kind of felt come through um, throughout of this. So a big, massive thank you from me. It's been a, a lovely, wonderful conversation. Really, really insightful. I'm going to pass over to Mark for some of his closing remarks, but just thank you again. My pleasure. Hey, thanks, Richie. I mean, you've, you've covered a few things already, but maybe just a couple of standout things from my point of view. Um, I, I love the way you talked about networking, actually, in terms of it's not transactional, it's mutual. Um, and But the very specific thing you said was, it, you know, ultimately, it gets you to be top of mind. What are people saying when you're not in the room? Well, you want to kind of be programming it. That's a really important point. The other thing I loved is when you're talking about bang-ups and the fact that you were rather bluntly made redundant um, and pivoted, but you said you had to put your ego aside. And I think that in the end is, that's a sign of maturity and, and, and class as a, as a leader and as an individual because our egos get in our way. And we, we talked briefly about Twitter and, and we'll, Richie, sorry, we'll never get Elon Musk on the show now, I guess. But, you know, I mean, it's it, it's not about the I am. So that was a, a brilliant example of that. And um, talked about being culturally additive. Uh, we talked about the cult of whiskey. Fascinating. Uh, and then I just love your global perspectives. And sorry to make you choose between your favourite babies of, of countries. Um, but it's been a lovely into a lovely arc, not least in ending by saying that you're now at a point where you're doing more to, to do your bit. Uh, and I'm sure you'll do that brilliantly as you have done your core role throughout your, your career as well. So thanks also for me, Sophia. It's been brilliant. Mark, Richie, thank you so much. It's been absolute pleasure. I mean, I'm talking about what I love most. So thank you for having me. Thank you.